The following sermon audio is from The Source Church in Plainfield, Illinois. More information about The Source Church can be found at www.thesourcechurch.life. Today's reading is from Exodus 2, the birth of Moses. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank, and his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river, while her young women walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman, and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. When the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses because, she said, I drew him out of the water. One day, when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens, and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together, And he said to the man in the wrong, why do you strike your companion? He answered, who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, surely the thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and drew water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. The shepherds came and drove them away, but Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. When they came home to their father rule, he said, How is it that you have come home so soon today? They said, An Egyptian delivered us out of the hands of the shepherds and even drew water for us and watered the flock. He said to his daughters, Then where is he? Why have you left the man? Call him that he may eat bread. And Moses was content to dwell with the man, and he gave Moses his daughter Zipporah. She gave birth to a son, and he called his name Gershom, for he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of the slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. Good morning, everyone. Let's pray. Our great God, God over history, God of our salvation, we we know that we see such a little piece 
of what you are up to at any given time. We confess that sometimes we can grow impatient or fearful. And God, I pray that this morning you would give us a greater glimpse of how you move in history, how you move in your people and through your people. Pray that you would show us your good purposes at work, that you would give us comfort through a glimpse of your sovereign hand, and that as a result, we would trust you and we would worship. I ask this in Jesus' name, amen. As we get further into Exodus, there are going to be some sections we're going to cover that are very large. Now, this morning we read all of chapter 2, but uh, in some future weeks we won't necessarily read all of the verses that we're going to cover. And so what that means is that the best way for you to get the most out of these sermons is for you to be familiar with the text ahead of time. I don't know if you get the, the newsletters that we send out every Monday, the e-newsletters, but if you look at those, there is a small section, uh, thanks to Evan's recommendation, we have a small section there that tells you what passage is going to be preached the following Sunday. So I'd advise all of you to take a look at that and just read it through once um, during the week, and then you'll come with some familiarity and, and you'll get all the more out of the sermons. Last week we saw that ancient Israel had been dwelling in Egypt for 400 years and what had started as a welcomed migration quickly degenerated into Israel's subjection to violent slavery. And that may feel like, oh, matters are out of control. Where where is God in all this? But actually those very events had been foretold to Abraham generations earlier that his descendants would be afflicted for 400 years but then that the nation that they served would be judged and afterward they would come out with great possessions. And so even the existence of that plan from the mouth of God to Abraham, that might make us feel a little bit uncomfortable. Wait, God planned this? What does that mean for my times of trial? Does that mean that I should just emotionally shut down and close my eyes till it's over because... God will do what God will do. Okay, Sarah, Sarah. And there are really at least two answers to that question. First, no, you shouldn't shut down because we have such great assurances in Christ. Christ's coming has changed everything, and we can see clearly now that for those who are found in him by faith, all things, all things are working together for our good. And the best is yet to come. So we can endure any circumstances that we might receive from the hand of providence. But also, Scripture suggests that there is plenty that we can do, ways that we can get busy as we wait for deliverance. And that's a bit of what we're going to talk about today in Exodus 2. What are the signs that his deliverance is coming? That the waiting is almost over? And what should we be about as we wait? Now, you've probably noticed that I like to give roadmaps of where we're going in a sermon. So we have an outline for you to look at today. I'm calling this message an anatomy of deliverance. We're going to look at God's deliverance. What's it made up of? How does it come about? What are signs that it is near? And um, so we see that when God begins to act, he raises up servants and his people begin to pray. 
when God begins to act, he raises up servants and his people begin to pray. So in verses one through 10, we will see that unknown, seemingly obscure servants are preparing the way for the coming deliverance. In verses 11 through 22, we're gonna see the appointed leader emerging and it's not gonna be in quite the way that we thought that would happen. And then in verses 23 through 25, we're gonna see that prayer is mobilized. So at the start of chapter two, things get kicked off with Moses' parents coming together. And we don't want to skip over this. Like, what a great act of faith for them to even get married during this time when, you know, it was basically a death sentence for any children, any male children that would be born. That's a great act of faith to just get married. Later, we're going to learn that their names are Amram and Jochebed. And, um, you know, sure enough, the woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. The Hebrew for there, he saw that he was a fine child. It's literally, she saw that he was good. So it echoes what God had said about creation in Genesis 1, when he pronounced, it is good, it is good. So this is reminding us that God's good purposes are still afoot and that what we're about to encounter in the story of Moses is actually a recreation story of sorts. Now, because of Pharaoh's edict to kill all of the Israelite boy infants, she has to keep him hidden for three months. Can you imagine just the constant fear? To, like, how do you keep this kid quiet? Like, especially as he's growing, his lungs are gaining strength. Man, I can't imagine that sort of anxiety. But, and like, you just, your imagine goes to, what if soldiers knock the door down? They're not only gonna grab my kid and toss him in the Nile, they'll probably run me through with a sword for disobeying Pharaoh. So if you remember, when we looked at Hebrews 11, it told us that Moses' parents hid the child because of their faith in God. That's what was driving them to take this risk. So after three months of covert parenting, it was becoming untenable, so they seek a long-term solution for their precious child. And uh, so we read that uh, when she could hide him no longer, she took him in a basket made of papyrus reeds, and she covered it with pitch that was for waterproofing. And she put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank. Okay, this is important. The word translated as basket here is in Genesis translated ark. So the word most basically means box-shaped thing. And it's only used in the Noah narrative and then here in Exodus. In both cases, it's covered in pitch for waterproofing and it's carrying people on the water. So do you see how what Moses' mom is doing is a deeply theological decision? She knew from the oral history of her people that eight had been saved from watery judgment in just this way. And so she makes this mini ark for Moses and she's, she's trusting God to deliver him and she's surely desperately praying the whole time. And we're going to see in Exodus that Moses is a new type of Noah. It is, he will be the one to bring God's people safely through the waters. And through Moses, God's promises to humanity will be advanced just like they were through Noah. So it looks backward to the Noah narrative, but there's also something in this ark send-off that looks forward as well. And there's irony in play because Moses is brought to the very river that was supposed to be his watery grave, but it actually turns into his salvation. 
Moses would not be the last biblical figure to pass through the place of death and emerge into a life of glory and power on the other side. So throughout this passage, and really throughout Exodus, we are meant to see precursors, foreshadowings in Moses of the perfect servant sent at the fullness of time. And you see this in Deuteronomy, you see it in the Gospels, you see it in 1 Corinthians and Hebrews, that they all tell us to find in Jesus a better Moses, one who finishes what Moses only started. And we'll begin to see many of those parallels today. Well, starting in verse 4, we read that um, his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river, while her young women walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman, and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call, you, call a, uh, a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. Notice the courage of Moses' sister Miriam here. I mean, to, to stick with this forbidden baby and to speak out, not only to an adult, but to royalty, to royalty from an ethnicity that hates your people. Man, what courage. And because of her actions, Moses would live and her people would be delivered in the end. So Miriam shows us that kids are not too young to take risks for God, to boldly stand with his purposes against those of the surrounding society. So it's no wonder, I think, that even the mother of Jesus was named after Miriam. Did you know that? That the, the Greek is, um, the, uh, the Greek of um, Maria is based on Miriam. So may the kids of the source likewise, just like Miriam, just like Mary, learn from a young age that God wants to include them in his big plans to advance his kingdom. We see the providence of God in all these events, don't we? I mean, the Nile is a huge river. The Hebrew ghetto was probably a ways off, and yet the basket is safely sitting by the royal bathing spot right as the princess arrived at the river. Now, even if that was planned, even I don't know if, if um, Moses' parents were really shrewd and, and thought, like, what are our best chances here? Let's, let's put the basket in the reeds here. Maybe that's the case. I don't know. But even if it was a plan, it would have been a miracle to pull it off. God was working a deliverance for his people, even though they wouldn't realize it for decades more. So the girl went and called the child's mother, and uh, Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this child, nurse him for me, I'll give you money. So the, Moses' own mom gets to take him and nurse him, and, and he grows up for a time in, in their house. And then he's brought to Pharaoh's daughter, and she names him Moses because she said, I drew him out of the water. This name Moses, uh, apparently it could have meaning in both Hebrew and Egyptian. And that's just a glimpse of how Moses would be a man caught between two worlds. So it's amazing that we see that out of Pharaoh's very family, murderous Pharaoh, out of his family, we see this tender-hearted princess. And it's likely that she wasn't completely naive, right? You see this Hebrew girl coming out, like right when you find the baby, you might guess, okay, maybe there's a connection here. But the bottom line is that Pharaoh's daughter wanted to save this child. Not just, not, it's not, I don't think, because she feared God. It's just because of common grace. 
Like people who don't know the true God can still reflect aspects of his character. And in God's sovereign purposes, sometimes they show their best side when it most serves the people of God. So perhaps for Pharaoh's daughter, this was even the beginning of her own journey toward the God of the Hebrews. Now, isn't it amazing that Moses, he gets officially sanctioned and officially paid for time with his family of origin. It might have been till he was weaned at age two or three. It might have been even longer, uh, like age six or seven. That's when the Egyptian uh, royal training program began. Um, but whatever the case, whether it was just, you know, slight memories that, that Moses had um, to remind him of his identity, or whether it was, no, he actually remembered quite a few things. Whatever the case, this is just a brilliant picture of the Bible's message that God's weakness is stronger than men. Because if you think about it, Pharaoh's focus is all about killing these Hebrew boys because it's those boys who are a threat. It's those, the, those Hebrew men who he's scared of revolting or causing problems. And he was so intent on it that it made it seem like there's just no way for Israel to survive the will of this madman. But in the end, it's five women who proved to be Pharaoh's undoing. Shifra, Pua, Jochebed, Miriam, and Pharaoh's daughter. It's beautiful. They're used to foil this arrogant despot. And all they're trying to do is take care of the children who are put in front of them. It's beautiful. It's beautiful to see the momentum against evil that builds as God is preparing to decisively act. Even before the deliverer arrives on the scene, His cause has been prepared by humble and nameless figures who were raised up at just the right time. And you know, we see this also in the case of the deliverer, Jesus. You think about humble Mary, how she accepted the role of birthing the the deliverer. You think about how when another of Satan's lackeys, Herod, tries to kill all the baby boys in Bethlehem, humble Joseph obeyed the angel and he led Jesus out of certain out of what would have been certain death and you can think about um, the obscure John the Baptist how he prepared the way making ready a repentant people who are eager to behold their God so this thwarting of Pharaoh's plans by people whom he would never suspect does that encourage you as you think about the world today I hope it does Because God can use meek and humble and obscure servants wherever they are. In the centuries after Christ, um, Jesus, our deliverer, continues to act decisively at key times in ongoing history. And we still see God using the faithful efforts of people whom we may, may not expect to be used in that way. I'll give you a couple examples. A largely unknown hero of revival in the British Isles and the first great awakening in North America was a woman named Selina Hastings. Her husband, the Earl of Huntingdon, died in 1746 when she was just 38 years old. Now, if you were an aristocratic widow, what would you give your time to and your energies? Maybe you would just settle into a life of leisure Maybe you would obsess over your kids and grandkids. Instead, Lady Huntington spent the next 45 years sponsoring and corresponding with evangelists like John Wesley and George Whitfield and various hymn writers like Isaac Watts 
missionaries to Africa, missionaries to Native Americans. She was responsible for the construction of 64 chapels in England and a theological college, all with a reformed revivalist emphasis that would end up influencing Congregationalists, Methodists, Church of England, even Evangelical Catholics. Or, I'll give you another example. Henrietta Mears was a Sunday school teacher and youth leader in the early 20th century in California. And she was never famous. She, she never made a lot of money. She um, never married or had kids. She was plagued by poor health her whole life, and yet literally hundreds of full-time ministers were cultivated through her ministry, including the founder of Campus Crusade, the founder of Young Life, and a young man named Billy Graham. So, like the bold women of Exodus 1 and 2, when God is preparing to act powerfully, to deliver his people, to bring in a great harvest of souls, to turn the tide for a generation or a culture, he prepares the way with meek servants who are contributing at key moments, often unbeknownst to themselves. Do you want God to move in powerful ways in our context today? If so, are you being faithful in the simple, perhaps seemingly mundane tasks that he's put before you? Because it's out of this everyday faithfulness and making the most of the opportunities you've been given that we're then astounded to look back and see that God has woven all of these contributions together to accomplish great things. And we'll see that even more clearly from the vantage point of eternity. You know, there are people who pray for revival, but they don't show up for what's currently happening in the church. There are people who pray for the moral tide to turn in our country, but they don't want to serve the kids of the church. There are people who pray for our city to be reached, but then they avoid their neighbors. So whenever we have a big picture longing for what God would do in our midst, there's, always, there's almost always a simple way that we could contribute to that just by being faithful with the challenges that he's put right in front of us. So like the midwives of, of chapter one, like Jacobet and, and Miriam, um, we can take steps of faithfulness knowing that we belong to a larger story and we know that we're partakers in big promises, that God is doing something big. So none of our efforts are wasted. Well, the verses now skip to the time when Moses had grown up. Now let's not forget about all the benefits that, that came about from his river journey to Pharaoh's daughter. Not only would Moses' life be spared, but Acts 7 tells us that he was actually instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians. So he would have learned languages, he would have learned law, he would have had military training, he would have learned leadership and administrative methods. He would have known the inner workings of the Egyptian court. He would have been familiar with all their different pagan gods and idolatries. So Really, no deliverer could have been better prepared to know both worlds. It's very similar to, after the time of Christ, the Apostle Paul, how he uniquely knew the Jewish world and the Greco-Roman world. It's cool to see how God does that. But despite all that Egyptian learning, probably the most important part of Moses' equipping came in what happened next. Verse 11. He went out to his people and looked on their burdens. So he left the palace and his sanitized royal surroundings. And he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his own people. 
Now, that's not unusual. Chapter 5 is going to show us that actually beatings happened quite a lot. But for whatever reason, this beating struck Moses in a poignant way. Notice how in verse 11, it's emphasized a Hebrew, one of his own people. Moses went out from the palace to go among his own people, and God had been working in Moses in his view of himself, in his view of the world. And so when he comes out of that palace, there's, there's a change happening. Hebrews 11 tells us that Moses chose rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt. That probably brings up for you all those challenges we saw when we were studying Hebrews chapter 11. The question of, will you live for this worldly comfort? Or do you want your life to be about the often difficult pilgrimage to the city of God? That's a question you can keep thinking about as we consider Moses' life and ministry really throughout Exodus. Moses could have cocooned himself in the pleasures of the Egyptian court. He could have left his people to their fate. But instead, he foreshadows the incarnational trajectory of the final deliverer, Jesus. Jesus left riches and glory, the glory of heaven, to come down, to take on flesh, to suffer. And so like Moses, like Jesus, we also have that calling? Are we willing to forfeit comforts and power in order to identify with the weak and the needy ones in this world, especially those who belong to the body of Christ? Moses just couldn't stomach the way that this Hebrew was being treated. So he looked this way and that, and it says he struck down the Egyptian and hit him in the sand. Now Moses had probably put together the pieces of his dual background. He probably said, hey, my credentials make me the perfect champion for my people. He was probably just acting in accordance with the call of God on his life as he understood it at that time. He had this love for justice. He couldn't just stand idly by while this stuff was happening. But the next day, the foolishness of what Moses had just done became apparent. It says two Hebrews were struggling. And... um, He said to the man in the wrong, why do you strike your companion? And he answered, who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Had Moses really thought it was just going to be that easy? Like he could swoop down like like some Batman-like vigilante and, you know, kill a few Egyptians and then the people would just kind of fall in behind him and then they'd take on the established Egyptian military? Um, I don't know that he'd thought it through very well. And that even the next day, this one Hebrew who Moses would probably have hoped, like, this guy is going to respect me because of what I did. Instead, he, he sees Moses as a killer, really no different than the other Egyptians. So why should he follow him? Moses wasn't ready. He was like Luke Skywalker rushing off to save his friends at Cloud City. It wasn't time. But the Lord's messenger has to advance the Lord's cause and the Lord's way. That's what Moses needed to learn. And for that, he would need extra training. He would need a different kind of training. And that's what we'll see happens. Then Moses was afraid and he thought, surely the thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian. This is a stunning failure for Moses, who is the author of Exodus. When you think about it, he could have just edited this all out, right? He could have said, and then I was in Midian because um, I had made 
enemies in powerful places. No, instead, he, he's honest about his mistakes because he wants us to see that the deliverance would have to come from God. Israel was without hope. Moses was just a flawed human. Deliverance would have to come from God. And every servant of God has to come to that realization before we are of any use at all in the purposes of God. So Moses flees probably 150 miles east and he sat down by a well. We read this account that the priests of Midian had seven daughters. They came, they were drawing water. Some shepherds um, were, I don't know if they were pushing them out of the way, pushing them down, taking their water. Um, but Moses comes and saves them and he waters their flock. And then they come home to their father, Ruel, and he's like, why are you home already? And they say, well, this Egyptian helped us. And he's like, bring him home. If, you, if you're a father of seven daughters, you don't let a single man get away from, um, from your house. So call him that he may eat bread. And uh, Moses was content to dwell with the man. And he gave Moses his daughter, Zipporah. She gave birth to a son and called his name Gershom. For he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. So Midian was uh, east of the Sinai Peninsula, but south of the Promised Land. And notice the soft landing that God gives his servant in training Moses. The name Ruel means companion or friend of God or shepherd of God. And he's called the priest of Midian, probably because he was the representative of the God of Abraham to his people. Genesis 25 tells us that the Midianites were descendants of Abraham by his second wife, Keturah, whom he married after Sarah died. So Moses had landed among the Hebrews' distant cousins and were drawn into this encounter at the well. Now, when a well is mentioned in Scripture, you have to pay attention. Wells in the ancient world, they were the source of life in this arid climate. Big things happened at wells. And in Genesis, we can remember back to Genesis how Abraham's son Isaac, his wife Rebecca, was found at a well. In the next generation, Jacob, or Israel, his wife Rachel was met at a well. And then Jacob went to work as a shepherd for her father Laban. So Moses is kind of being drawn into his ancestor's story here. And it's showing that he is the appointed one through whom the story has to continue. But this well account, it doesn't only look backward to Genesis, it also looks forward to the final appointed shepherd of God's people. Not only was Jesus preserved out of a slaughter of the newborn boys, not only did he leave his royal residence to identify with his people, but also Jesus encountered a woman at a well who is not from the people of Israel. He doesn't marry her, though her past marriages are discussed. And he wraps her into the people of God, the bride of Christ. And he draws living water for her. And he becomes a shepherd to the flock of God that emerges in her region. And he draws water for them as well. So Moses' defense of Zipporah and her sisters at the well, it shows us something good about Moses' character, that he's still not able to see oppression and do nothing. We like that about Moses. But unlike Jesus at the well, Moses probably wasn't caught up in, in like a purposeful mission here. He was probably a reactionary. We get the sense from these verses that for Moses, Midian was kind of a final stop. 
as far as he's concerned, he, he probably had a sense of failure. He had a resolution like, I guess I'm not the guy after all. And so he settles down. We see that the Lord still loved him and provided for him abundantly in the midst of his regrets and his hiding. He has a wife. He has peace. We'll see in the next chapter he has a job as a shepherd, the traditional occupation of Abraham's descendants. And Moses starts a family. We're intentionally told that his first son's name is Gershom, meaning stranger there. And he says, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. The point isn't that he's away from home in Midian. The point is that he was away from his true home when he was in Egypt. When God is preparing to act, he raises up servants. And, and all of them have a backstory. They have ways in which they were being specifically prepared for the role that they were to play. While we thought that nothing was happening, a Hebrew child was actually growing up in Pharaoh's palace. While we thought that God wasn't listening, the Christ child was actually growing up in a poor backwater district of the Middle East. And it would still be 30 years after the nativity before Jesus started his ministry. Because even sinless Jesus had to grow in wisdom and in stature. How much more Moses and other leaders who are merely human. Moses, even if we consider him the most faithful servant of God apart from Jesus, a time not only of growth but of testing and purification was needed for him. And maybe some of us can recognize those times in our own lives when we needed to be tested and purified. We wanted to serve God with our whole hearts, but we were going about it in the wrong way. We were relying on our own natural strength instead of relying on God. Christian ministry or, or fruitful service to God, it's not like other human endeavors. You can't just fake it till you make it. You can't come at it with just a bunch of raw talent and, and then think you'll become a success. You need the wisdom that grows out of weakness. You need the faith that comes out of hopelessness. And that's why you see so many talented young ministers crash and burn because they haven't been tested and approved. And some are going to walk away for good and they'll say, if I can't do it my way, then just forget the whole thing. But others like Moses will pass through Midian and they'll come back. Much less flashy, but much more fruitful. So the example of Moses stands out as typical of what God does with servants that he's raising up. He moves them from the way of failure to the place of effectiveness. And he does that by emptying them of self-confidence and making them reliant on God alone. Only after Moses had run away from his role of deliverer, only after he had given up his own agenda, that's when God could prepare him in the quietness and the humility of those years in Midian. And in fact, that journey from self-reliance to God-reliance, that's a journey for the whole people of God in times when God is preparing to act. And we see that transition for the whole people of God starting to take place in verse 23. It says, During those many days the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery, and they cried out for help. A whole new generation had grown up in slavery while Moses was in Midian. Perhaps they were hoping that a new pharaoh would lighten their load. But apparently he hadn't, or maybe he'd even made it worse. 
maybe things are exactly the same, but just the passing of a pharaoh and a new ruler kind of marks time for them and helps them realize just how long they've been in slavery and that there really is no hope for the future. And so they cry for rescue, and their cry for rescue from slavery came to God. And God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. Something is changing. And it starts, at least from one perspective, with the groaning and crying out of the people. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. So prayer is portrayed here as the moment of decisive difference in the preordained plan of God. It's kind of like a, a chicken and egg argument, right? Like which came first, God's decision to act or the people's prayer? Now, given God's word to Abraham centuries earlier about this time in Egypt, I think we have to say that God's definite plan came first. It was going to be 400 years and then he was going to deliver them. But why? What, like, why then the prayer? Why the emphasis on prayer? Because when God is about to act, he raises up prayer among his people. Why doesn't he just do what he wants to do? Why does he need our prayers to be involved? He wants our hearts to be united with his heart before he acts. It's a huge part of what prayer is about. Will you join him in prayer? Will you join him in his work by expressing desire for the same things that he wants? If so, if we really learn to pray in that way, with faith in God's character, with love for the same things that God loves, well then, the time for God's deliverance is near. God heard, God remembered, God saw, God knew. We see these four verbs. God heard their prayers, okay? And the repetition here of God did this, it builds our anticipation, right? Something great is happening here. We're expecting something to happen, and it happens because God remembers. Does that mean that he'd forgotten? Does, had God forgotten about Israel, and then he's like, wait a minute, my people are still in slavery. No, when remember is used this way, it's covenantal language. For God to remember means that he's decided it's time to act, so his promises to his people are called to the forefront of his mind. It's, it's um, another time when it's used is in Genesis 8, when Noah is on the ark. And then it says, God remembered Noah. And that's when the flood begins to subside. Is it that he had forgotten that boat on the water? No. He had remembered the promises he made to Noah, that this wouldn't be the end, but it was time for the floods to subside. So there's... Um, that's what it means when God remembered that he is about to act, that he's, remember, he's bringing his covenant to the forefront of his mind. God heard, God remembered, God saw the people of Israel. And there's an interesting contrast set up here because if you look at verse 11, Moses went and looked upon Israel. And it's actually the same Hebrew verb. You could translate it, Moses saw his people. But Moses seeing in verse 11 didn't get the job done, did it? Moses seeing wasn't effectual in nature. But here in verse 25, God himself sees, and that's the scene that the people actually need. Because as he sees, God knows. God knows. What does he know? That verb's just kind of left hanging there. You're like, God knows what? Does he know their troubles? Does he know their pain? 
Does he know a path forward? Yes, to all of them. Because God knows them. Knowing in the Old Testament indicates an intimate relationship. So the one who knows is familiar in every way. He's fully present and attentive to the object of his knowing. So for example, in Psalm 1-6, we're told that God knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. It means that he sees the path they're on, and he's protecting and preserving them, and in the end, they will be rewarded. He is with them. And similarly here in Exodus 2, God knew It means he's fully present with his people and good things are about to unfold. Now, even though the tide is turning for the people of Israel, they still had no indication of it for years. Acts 7 tells us that Moses was 40 when he fled to Midian. Exodus 7 tells us that he was 80 when he returned. And then Deuteronomy tells us that he was 120 when he died. 40, 40, 40. The number 40 throughout the Bible indicates a time of testing and preparation. Why 40 specifically? I don't know. But it's cool to think that pregnancies are 40 weeks, a time of pain and discomfort, but great anticipation. Well, during the flood, it rained for 40 days and 40 nights. In chapter 24, we'll find that Moses would be on Mount Sinai for 40 days and 40 nights. We know that the wilderness wanderings would last throughout Moses' final 40 years. When you take 40 times 10, you get 400 years in Egypt before the deliverer Moses would appear. And even these number patterns are meant to point us to the final deliverer because there would be another 400-year gap, seemingly lost years in the history of Israel without prophetic witness. It lasted from the last book of the Old Testament till 400 years later, the infant Jesus arrived in circumstances of great peril. And he identified with his people's waiting and preparation. He fasted and was tempted by the devil himself in the wilderness for 40 days. After his resurrection, he was with his followers for 40 days, helping them to prepare for, for his departure. But his departure was not a forgetting or a looking away. At his ascension, Jesus reminded them the Holy Spirit's going to come. And he said, I am with you always to the end of the age. He hears, he remembers, he sees, he knows. Those statements are incredibly comforting and they're still true of the God we serve. So what trials are appointed for you? Do those trials feel unbearable? Do they feel pointless? Where is your need for salvation? Maybe you're grieved that a loved one doesn't know Christ. Maybe you're crying out for rescue from slavery to an addiction. Maybe you're groaning for deliverance from shame or regret. Or maybe you are just rightfully longing for awakening and renewal and the return of Christ. God's preparations for action aren't readily apparent to us. We don't know his timeline. It's not as simple as him telling Abraham... 400 years, then you're good. He specifically says, no one knows the, the time of his return. And we don't know his plans for our individual lives either. But we can act boldly on the opportunities that he gives us. And we can receive his discipline and training in the seasons of forced waiting. 
and we can pray with confidence. We can know that he hears, he sees, he remembers, he knows. And one day soon, we will see with our own eyes the salvation of our God. So Lord, I ask that you would meet each of us in those places of waiting. You know the trials that are appointed for each life. You also know our plight together, God, where we are at in in our culture, in our unique moment in history. So we cry for your deliverance from sins that are hanging us up, for situations that seem hopeless, for relationships that seem too difficult to bear. And we pray for your final deliverance. We pray for the return of Christ. We ask, Jesus, come quickly. We know that in your presence, we have every good thing. And we ask that that would be fully manifest, that we would see you with our own eyes, that this time of testing would end and God would be glorified throughout the earth forever. We ask it in Christ's name, amen.